Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show. This is the Pop Rocks Radio Talk Show. I'm your host, Pop Art Painter Jamie Rocks, and this is the big show. You found it. I sure I'm glad you did. Hey, before we start today, I just want to uh, let everyone know, thank you all for being concerned. Those people who uh, emailed me or um, what do they call it, uh, DM'd me. See, I'm, I'm hip and cool. I'm young, baby. I'm young. Um, no, I had, you know, I was going through the memories on Facebook. I don't know if you can do that on your phone, but you can on the computer, and that's what I use. And, um, a year ago, I was I was sick in the hospital, not not with COVID or anything, but some other I had an infection. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I, but I posted a couple pictures, uh, you know, of, of me in the hospital, saying, "Boy, I sure I'm glad I'm not there uh, now," you know. And um, so I think some people didn't understand, or, or they 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 thought I was in the hospital, and they were concerned, and um, I don't know, gleefully hoping the paintings they had bought were going to double on value. No, I'm. I'm no one said that. Uh, I don't know if anybody was thinking it. Maybe they were. But anyway, um, I'm okay. So the uh, the pain value just dropped. Sorry about that. Um, it, it's not you know going through the roof yet. Uh, but no, seriously, I'm I'm okay and I'm very excited today. It's the end of the week, and um, man, I just had a really good day, busy day, a lot of work. Uh, but I am excited for our show tonight. We have a fantastic uh, director, co-writer. Well, let's just say this, filmmaker, filmmaker. Um, I watched this film uh, a couple days ago uh, that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and our guest today is Mr. Mark Savage, uh, director and co-writer of uh, this fantastic film called Painkiller. Without further ado, here he is. Mark, how are you, my friend? I'm great, James. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, doing fantastic. I, uh, I really liked this film. Awesome. I'm glad you did. <laughs> it's always better. It's always better. It's always a better chat, I think, if we, uh, if, you know, if, if you, um, if you found something of, uh, if you found something to like about it. So um, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> right. Appreciate you taking a look. Well, I'm putting the tomatoes away, and um, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But seriously, I wanted to ask you right off the bat of this film. Uh, now it comes out um, next week, right? It's it, it, Drops next week. Um, yeah, on Tuesday. So when, um, on on the fourth. Yep. That's fantastic. Um, now, when people watch this, though, I know that people are going to be wondering because I wondered about it. Was you're one of the co-writers on this? I mean, and, and there's a pretty heavy-duty message with this. Um, and I think everyone, everywhere. I, I mean, I don't know about other countries so much, but I know here in the states, pretty much knows somebody that has had a problem with these, uh, these uh, uh, prescription uh, painkillers and whatnot. Yeah, was there yeah, any sort of biographical aspect to this story? Yes, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, my, my co-writing and producing partner is a, um, a fellow named uh, Tom Parnell. And Tom and I you know, had made a couple of movies before this one together, um, 
you know, co-writing it together. He's executive producing and I'm directing and producing. Tom had a tragedy in his own life. Tom lost mm. his, his 21-year-old son um, um, to opioids. Mm. And this was about three years ago. Um, needless to say, it completely devastated him. And, you know, oh, he went through, you know, a period of grieving, which was just, um, you know, just horrible. You know, I was there with him, so I to lend him any support that I could. But, you know, what it did, it really opened him up and myself to, um, you know, the opioid issue. As you say, it's affected so many people. Like, if it hasn't affected you personally, you know someone it's affected or... Uh, you know, either your child or, um, you know, your father, son, niece, nephew, kid next door, whatever, everyone impacted. So, yeah, for Tom, it was a way of making the film was actually a way of uh, not only making people more aware of the issue, kind of like through a narrative film, uh, it's also a way for him to sort of deal with his own grief, you know, a catharsis of mm. types. That's what, he's, that's what he said. He said that it despite it being very difficult to write, and even on the set, like he broke down a couple of times while we were shooting because it was just so close to home. But he said ultimately it was a catharsis for him. So, you know, that was certainly our inspiration. You know, the death of his son inspired us to do something Hmm. in a way. He wanted to do something in a way that would almost like honour his son, you know, so that his son's death would not be for nothing. So we thought, well, why don't we make a film? Our decision was to make like a genre film, like in a way that's almost like the picture frame that we tell our human story within. And uh, we sort of made it a continuation of um, another film we'd made several years earlier called Stress to Kill. And it's not a direct sequel, but we took two of the characters from that film. There was a doctor played by Tom and also Bill Oberst who played a role in that film. Mm. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. He and he was great in this film. Uh, you know, it's it's just amazing. You know, it's so sad to hear that story. But on, it, on the one hand, uh, the impetus of the story. But on the other hand, I think this is going to help a lot of people because I will tell you, man, even in my life, I my I had a sister that uh, passed away, younger sister, years ago, many years ago. But it really affected my parents. I mean, they just it knocked right. the wind out of their sails. For like 10 years, you know? So I'm glad to hear that he's working, you know, that he's he's making stuff forward. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, well, yeah. Um, when, we were, when we were deciding what film we wanted to do, um, our next film, because the last one we did was a film called Purgatory Road, and in that one we sort of explored mm-hmm. religion and um, how people use the often justification of faith to, you know, treat other people appallingly that's kind of like explored that theme you know that there's good and bad people who use some people use faith in a good way other people use a different way in this one we also want to do the same thing of you know which is why tom himself in this film he plays the good doctor um Mm. so that became that sort of became interesting because bill in a sense who he plays against and the two become friends within the story uh, bill in a sense is playing the version of tom himself so tom's sort of like acting next to a guy who's gone through what he's gone through. So it sort of had an interesting irony wow. there. And, yeah, it, it was um, initially he, was, he, was, he wasn't so sure whether he wanted to explore that scene on, on screen. But then, you know, he decided, well, we, we wanted to do that more than make, say, for example, like a documentary um, or make something that right. was more, um, you know, more just like a, just a heavy 
drama without the genre elements, but we like those other elements. I mean, we love making thrillers and, and, and horror and action. Um, so we figured, well, let's try to find something that we can kind of get a balance between, you know, you know the message about opioids, but without it being swallowed up. Um, so that's why to, mm-hmm. to us, you know, the balance was making it, you know, a thriller. It's a thriller that's got aspects of and exploring the opioid epidemic, but it's exploring it in a way, sort of going after the people who are really responsible, which are the pharmaceutical companies. And I think that was a particularly right. cathartic aspect for for Tom. I mean, when you because uh, to lose your own child is probably the, the worst thing you can go through. And it's interesting because there isn't even, and we explore this in the film, there isn't even a word for a parent that loses a child. You know, that's right. a line that's in the movie. You know, you know, if you lose a child, if you lose say, a, a, a child loses a parent, they're an orphan. You know, if, and then if someone who's married loses someone, they're a widow or a widower. And he does say there's nothing in the English language of a child, sorry, a parent who's lost a child. So that was also part of the reason behind making the film kind of throw a highlight on what it's like to be left behind. You know, when you've lost someone who by natural processes should die after you. You know, your child should die after you because they're younger. You know, that's the natural process. But then to deal with something that goes, it's completely unnatural to lose a child, you know, lose your own child. So that was something that we kind of felt was a good thing to explore within the movie as well, the dealing with the grief. Because, you know, the grief doesn't really ever go away. No, no, and it's, I'm telling you, I, you know, before the world stopped, I, I, I was watching this film and I was thinking about a, uh, a get-together I was at, a barbecue-type deal, and, you know, you go to enough of those, you, you kind of see the pattern around. There's always one guy that has a little too much to drink and, and just makes yeah. stupid statements. And um, yeah. this guy, you know, the, the opioid crisis had, was one of the topics of conversation, um, right. this particular get-together, and He's like, well, I just don't understand how people can get hooked up, you know, blah, blah, you know, just trying to be funny yeah. or inciting. And I looked at him, I'm like, you ever had a, a toothache? And, and then I, yeah. I, I even yeah. expanded yeah. the uh, the thought, and I said, you ever see that movie with Tom Hanks, that castaway movie? You know, he's, he's on the island, and yeah. he's got a toothache. has to come out. Yep. He had an ice skate. Everybody who saw that scene, which was, in my mind, horrific, just imagine, you yeah. know, not from a horror gore, just like, whoa, I don't want that to happen to me, um, perspective, is, you know, I'm like, everybody who watched that, who's ever had a toothache went, yeah, I get it, yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand, and pain can be very, you know, people get hooked on this stuff real easy, because pain sucks, and, you know, they, they need some relief from it. The problem is, the problem is, is, you know, these should be prescribed whilst they're fixing whatever is causing the pain. Yes. Um, yes. And a lot aren't. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's no fix of whatever the issue is, um, whether it be no. or whatever. No. Yeah. And, well, something that we, that we cover in the film um, that you'd be, um, you'd be familiar with having seen it is one of the most, I'd say one of the most pernicious aspects of the way that pharmaceuticals like this are marketed is what's actually falls under the category of what's called off-target marketing, which is actually illegal, which is where pharmaceutical companies, even though a particular drug has been approved, say, for example, you know, mm. drug A has been approved for people who've just had, you know, chemotherapy or they've just had a particular type of cancer. So they say, this is a drug for that. Now, 
what they do, they do this thing called off-target marketing, which meaning they also start marketing using doctors and incentivizing doctors. Right. They also start incentivizing them to start recommending those drugs meant for one thing for another thing. And there are often the drugs that the people become addicted to because, I mean, anyone who's suffered pain, and especially anyone who's gone through chronic pain where you literally, you're, you're in pain your, your entire life, it's a living hell. So for people like that, oh, you know, when someone says, oh, well, try this, and for the first couple of tries, it's like, oh, my God, my pain's gone. This is taking care of it. And you then have a situation where then they start taking a little more and they take it again and again, even though the drug was never meant to deal with pain on an ongoing basis like that it was meant for for example like someone who's just gone through chemo and those doctors prescribing that for chemo because it's not that we're saying that opioids have no place um no opioids just shouldn't be inappropriately marketed which they are because they they make so much money that you know the doctor prescribing that particular opioid for a cancer patient you know may, may only prescribe you know very limited amount but what happens you then have other doctors who start getting incentivized and someone goes to them and then says, mm. oh, well, I need this. And then they write a prescription. And the doctors themselves feel a lot of pressure to the point that when I um, was in Florida writing a movie with Tom, at one point I went to a coffee shop, kept bumping into this mm. guy who worked there, really nice guy. The manager is really nice to me. And finally, one of you said to me, you know, you're clearly not from around here. I guess, I don't know why, must have heard my <laughs> accent. Um, and he said to me, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, well, I'm actually um, writing a script with my uh, writing partner, Tom. What's the script about? Opioids. And the guy just went, oh, my God, what about it? And I told him. And he said, well, I wouldn't write prescriptions for the people who kept coming to me, so I lost my business. That's why I now run mm. a coffee shop. He said there was so mm. much pressure from his patients to write. You know, they'd come in and say, can you write me, um, can you write up like, you know, 60 Percocets or something like that? He goes, no, I'll write you two. You only need two. And he lost, he said, he lost like up to 70% of his patients because he he wasn't the guy. Prescriptions. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was terrible here. I moved to Florida. I live in South Florida and I moved here right as they started cleaning a lot of that up. Uh, Well, and and Uh don't get me wrong. Where they, they switched the scam. Uh, I don't yes. know what it is about here. Um, they, they they switched over to rehab homes uh, where they convert oh, all the homes okay. neighborhoods to rehab centers and you know right. the insurance, it, which is totally illegal. But yeah, but right before I moved here, um, it was all the pain management and it was doctors just like that in these little shops yes. and. You know, they uh, people were just driving down from uh, you know Kentucky and places, and just getting thousands of scripts written. It, it was crazy. Yes, crazy. And and now, folks, a couple of quick messages from some of our show sponsors. Stay tuned. We'll be back with the rest of the interview after these quick messages. Listen to this cool episode ad-free. If you're a VIP member, you can become one on my website, www.jamierocks.us, www.jamierox.us. This is a message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Older adults and people of any age who have serious underlying medical conditions are at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19. 
If you are at higher risk, you should stay home as much as possible and avoid close contact with people who are sick to protect yourself. Call your doctor if you have concerns about COVID-19 and your medical condition or if you get sick. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Metal Babe Mayhem is more than just an online store, it's a destination. MetalBabeMayhem.com carries over 150 rock and roll products, including clothing, jewelry, and accessories. Metal Babe Mayhem also offers shine clothing and alchemy gothic jewelry. In addition, Metal Babe Mayhem founder Allison Metal Babe Cohen is a rock and roll journalist who supports local and national artists with rock and reviews, interviews, playlists, networking, and more. Metal Babe Mayhem is taking over the world one shirt at a time. Glittering amethyst, energizing citrine, colorful fluorite, the other side of the sun, Earth's treasures brought to light. Since 1999, we have offered a unique collection of hand-selected minerals and gems for every budget, for novices, collectors, and healers. Visit www.tosots.com to view our wide selection of offerings and use coupon code ROCKS, that's R-O-X-X, for 10% off your first order. Remember... T-O-S-O-T-S dot com. Earth's treasures brought to light. Hi folks, Jamie Rocks here. Hey, if you're a big fan of uh, historical, cool historical books uh, like me, then you're going to want to check out our newest uh, show sponsor, Michelle Albion. Uh, fantastic author. She's got some really interesting, cool books out uh, that you're going to want to check out. I'm a big fan of all of these. Uh, the Florida Life of Thomas Edison, the quotable Edison, quotable Henry Ford, uh, quotable Eleanor Roosevelt, and, of course, the quotable Amelia Earhart. Uh, Michelle's just very keen and, and very, very cool, um, and these are just very cool books. So check out her website. Uh, there's links to uh, where you can pick these up on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble all over the place. Uh, MichelleAlbion.com, M-I-C-H-E-L-E-A. L-B-I-O-N.com. MichelleAubion.com. Very, very cool stuff. Check it out. It's yeah, un- you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's so just, you know, and I I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm, I'm on, you know, uh, some Sermon on the Mount or something, um, but it's just, man, if you're doing a, some type of business where you're hurting people like that and you're getting people, find something else to do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, find yeah. something else. You, you know, you don't want to be doing that. You know, it's just bad. Um, nobody wins. Okay. Yeah, you might get a swimming pool, but you can get a swimming pool all the way. Yeah. Make a movie. Um, no. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Well, that was kind of like our point. You know, basically, we just kind of figured, well, let's at least try to make a, hopefully, hopefully an entertaining thriller where we actually also uh, yeah, yeah. Sort of, you know, add, add a little bit more substance to it uh, rather than it just being about, you know, 
you know, you know, rather just think about, you know, they kidnap his daughter, he goes after them, or just cleaning up the usual sort of Charles right. Johnson-ish kind of death kind of scenario, which is fine for that. But we said, well, rather than just do a repeat of that, so I kind of thought, well, let's make him a different kind of vigilante um, where, you know, this time he's invested in something that's more um, contemporary. You know, because well, mm-hmm. Bronson, Bronson in the Death Wish films, you know, he was responding to his his, his wife and daughter being murdered and raped. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, yeah, he's responding to his daughter has been, um, yeah, she's been the the victim of the you know the uh, the underhanded marketing tactics of the opioid industry. So we figured that was like something that we could then personalize a little more, um, and it sort of becomes like a fantasy wish fulfillment. You know, certainly not advocating people really go and do it, but giving people at least that kind of satisfaction within the movie of um, there being some sort of justice. You know, I'm telling you, Mark, it's relatability, and I, I, it reminded me a million years ago when I was a kid. Um, it's back in the late 80s. Uh, I got mugged for the first time. Um, I lived in Ooh, wow. uh, Metro Detroit, and uh, I got, had never been mugged, you know, lived there my whole life, but uh, had never had a problem, but, you know, it's a numbers game, and, and that happened. And, I, man, I was messed. It wasn't even really a muggy. I mean, it, it was, but it wasn't like people were thinking. Some guy was robbed a store, was running down right. the street afterwards, turned the corner, ran into me and said, well, I've still got some room in my pocket. Let's, let's try to fill it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was wow. just this, this wow. thing. And, uh, but, you know, I was a kid. I, I was a, a teenager. And, wow. man, it messed with my head. And I'll tell you, a week later, um, Tim Burton's Batman movie with uh, Jack Nicholson and uh, oh, right. uh, Michael Keaton came out. And I must have watched that film ten times because I really, really entertained the thought of, Taking on bad guys, you know. Yeah. I, I was there, baby. <laughs> it helped me through I, that that film. You know, I think this film will help somebody in their situation. Yeah, I think it's very. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's very relatable, which is I, I think why revenge team movies do do well because we don't often see we don't often see justice done sort of a, a certainly in a simpler way as it can be exacted in the movies because justice being done is actually a very um, long, uh, long drawn out oh, process. Yeah. Um, so the thing is, like, so the idea that it's it's sort of taken care of in a more, um, you know, let's say, uh, accelerated way in a movie. I guess yeah, that that does have a certain amount of satisfaction. But I imagine even when you got mugged um, in Detroit, I, and actually I know Detroit. I, I lived in Detroit myself for three years. No. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, there you uh, go. I, to, I, to, I live downtown, fourth and back. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I used, to, <laughs> I, used to, I used to see, I used to go to a lot of movies. There was a theater downtown called the Adams. Yeah, the Adams. Mm-hmm. I saw Tougher Than Leather by Run DMC. The Adams, an opening night. Oh yeah, yeah. I used biggest... to see a lot of Kung Fu films and horror films and that kind of thing. Um, oh I, yeah. I, I lived out in. I lived actually in several different cities. I lived in Mount Clemens, Sterling Heights, Madison Heights. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, then finally Birmingham um, in in oh, nice. that area. So I know that area. That I I know that area, um, that downtown area. You know. Um, so yeah, I, I imagine that would have been pretty terrifying at that age to be to be mugged. Well, yeah, you know. I mean, you, when you're a kid, though, you you're pretty resilient. You bounce back. Yeah. Yeah. Birmingham was real nice. I, let me put it this way, Mark. It's kind of funny you mentioned that because um, after that happened. Um, I was living down there um, in my, my first apartment. I was a kid, you know, and, and 
But right. after that happened, right. I moved out. I didn't quite move to Birmingham. Couldn't afford Birmingham, but um, right. I did move to Royal Oak. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. No, you know, I, 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 know I, um, I, I know that area. I, I know that area well, too. I mean, I used to love it because I, mean, I also used to go to the Maple Theatre to see art house theatres, uh, art house films. And then oh, yeah? There was also a, a great drive-in, triple drive-in, called the Bel Air Drive-In, where I saw so many great films there at the, at the Bel Air Drive-In. Now, I have to ask you, um, how did an Aussie, because uh, you're originally from Victoria, right? Or Melbourne, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you yeah, wind up yeah. in Detroit? That's got to be a story. <laughs> Um, let's just say that I wound up initially for romantic, for romantic reasons. I got you. I I'd, got met you. A, met a I'd, I'd, I'd met a girl, <laughs> and I actually met her through a magazine called Starlog. Which oh, is very a, um, cool. Yeah. That's, a sound science yeah, fiction magazine. Cool. It turned up to 10. <laughs> that's an awesome sci-fi. Yeah, I met like, every sci-fi nerd ever knows Starlog. That was the yeah, thing, so, man. Yeah, because that's how I met her, because what happened... Um, um, I wrote a letter, and this is pre-internet. I wrote a letter saying I'd love to, I'd love to correspond with Americans about talking about movies and stuff, you know, because this is before internet. And mm-hmm. I ended up getting five. I got five hundred letters from different people um, in America, and wow. for a while I was writing to about wow. hundred pen friends. Yeah. <laughs> How cool! And eventually, it got, eventually it got narrowed down, and then eventually, yeah, I did actually go over there when I was quite young, and I got got married. I was even married for a while. And that was also how I first got my first job in distribution as well, which I worked for a company called Orion Pictures because they had a branch office, uh-huh. an area called South, Southland in, um, in Detroit. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, we, we had a branch office there. So I, I worked for Orion and also 20th Century Fox because the branch manager there um, became a really good friend of mine. We became <laughs> friends all our lives. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of how I got into both distribution and filmmaking because I always figured in order to make films, I wanted to have a background also in distribution because I figured it's going to help me with raising money, it's going to help me with dealing with distributors. So then I went back to Australia several years later. I also worked for a company called um, Village Roadshow, and they they also are still financier and it's a big big distributor in Australia. And uh, yeah, nice. so, but yeah, that was how I ended up in Detroit. <laughs> wow! I wish I would have known you then. I I'm telling you, an Australian guy into films. Like sci-fi and horror, I would have been invited yes. to every party in town, man. Just hanging out with you. Um, oh well, yeah. yeah no. Well, it was wow. a pretty cool time. I mean, I also met a couple of filmmakers there while I was there. I also met the Evil Dead guys because I met them before oh, Evil really? Dead ever came out, and they showed me their Within the Woods short film. And I also sat in on sound mix with Bruce Campbell of a film called Raiders Waiters of the Lost Park, The Adventures of Cleveland Smith. <laughs> and I got to know a couple of those guys, but I mostly got to know a filmmaker named Josh Josh um, who was like a bit of um, who was also associated with them. So um, yeah, I met it but I was just a I was literally just a teenager. All I had was Super Eight movies at that time. I remember calling up Renaissance pictures on the phone and Bruce Campbell answered <laughs> the phone. He goes, Alan and I remember saying, oh, you know, uh, hi, I'm, I'm, my name's Mark. You know, you didn't know me from a bar of soap. I said, I'm a super great filmmaker in Australia. I just saw your, I saw your, um, there was, they'd, done a, they'd done a magazine story. There was a, there was a Detroit show called PM Magazine. And mm-hmm. they'd done a story on these local boys called Renaissance Pictures who had a movie called Book of the Dead. And they were working on it. So that's how I found out about them. 
And so I called him up and Bruce Campbell himself answered the phone because they were all in the office that day. And I went down there and, and it was Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi and Bruce. They were all just sitting in there, just hanging out, you know. And so wow. they also were an inspiration to me because I found out how they financed Evil Dead and all that. And then eventually, of course, that's kind of like I financed my own films, a similar way that they've done, you know, going to dentists and doctors and professionals. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely, that, that was something that definitely inspired me. Um, meeting those guys because they were you know a bit older than me you know but meeting those guys back in those days was like um was pretty cool and that was Detroit that was in I think the area was called Farmdale there was a porno theater Ferndale. in that area too yeah no, Ferndale that's it yeah Ferndale yeah, Ferndale. So, yeah that, that's where they had their office that's where all the cool people hung out yeah man that's, that's <laughs> awesome yeah. that, that's amazing oh man well I yeah, tell you and then well, you, you wound up out in LA huh yeah, well, well, actually, what happened? I I then was working at Orion, and um, I I got a promotion while I was working at because I did I used to do publicity tours and you know, and I kind of oversaw releases and bookings. It was a small office, it was mm. only like seven or eight people, so you kind of did a lot of stuff. So I worked on the campaigns for like films like um, Strange Invaders and uh, Class, Easy Money, <laughs> Lone Wolf, McQuaid. You know, films like that. Yeah. Um, and then I got promoted because I was such a, I was sort of like such a super nerd, the only super nerd I'd say in the in the in the office. I was so obsessed with going to movies and telling everybody what movies were out and giving them all this data. Most who worked there weren't that interested. Um, I finally got a promotion. I went to LA. I got promoted to the um, um, and worked in the, at the LA office for about a year. But then went back to Australia because um, combination of I was very young, like a little homesick, but also I figured I want to go back there and make films back there. Then I'll come back here eventually, and that was kind of what mm. I did. And now, folks, a couple quick messages from some of our show sponsors. Stay tuned. We'll be back with the rest of the interview after these quick messages. Listen to this cool episode ad-free. If you're a VIP member, you can become one on my website, www.jamierocks.us, www.jamierox.us. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, ranked one of the top cancer centers in the nation for the last 27 years. The doctors at MD Anderson treat more rare cancers in a single day than many physicians see in a lifetime. And treatment plans are tailored to an individual patient's needs, allowing more comprehensive and thorough care. To become a patient, please visit makingcancerhistory.com. Aloha. If you have stress in your life or even anxiety and panic, I want to invite you to the Anxiety Coaches Podcast for a way out. The Anxiety Coaches Podcast is a relaxing and inspiring show bringing you lifestyle changes to calm your nervous system 
and help you heal. Heal anxiety, panic, and PTSD for life. We bring you two episodes every week. There's no need to walk this path alone. Join us for a relaxing, informative, and inspiring time and start your journey out of anxiety panic. That's anxietycoachespodcast.com. Aloha. Hey there, my name is Paige Beatty, and I am the founder of Hats On and Hats Off, which are two separate companies but aligned by the same philosophy of raising cancer awareness and forming smiles. Hats On is a for-profit corporation that sells cancer-specific hats to be proudly worn by you in hopes of raising awareness. A percentage of the proceeds will be donated to Hats Off, which is a non-profit corporation, raising money to buy wigs for cancer patients who can't afford them. That's where we're forming smiles. I believe cancer has touched almost everyone's lives in one way or another. A friend, a family member, a friend of a friend. So please, visit our website, www.hatsonhatsoff.com to learn how you can help raise awareness and form smiles. Rocks Gear, the online web shop of high-end luxury merchandise and products. All featuring original pop art paintings. From La Holla to Miami to London, www.merch.jamierocks.us. That's amazing. That is amazing. Well, LA is a totally different vibe than uh, Detroit, you know. I mean, um, oh man, that's cool. That is a cool story. Yeah, um, I I went to college in Boston, and then when I got out of school, I moved to. um, I said I I got to you know you spend a few winters in in Boston. You're like, I got to get the hell out of here. I got to I got to go the opposite (laughs) of this. So I moved to um, San Diego, which. It's very nice, but it's a little dull. So that means I was in LA every weekend and uh, yes. just drive yes. up the coast, you know. And uh, man, what a difference! <laughs> well, <let's laughs> way different than Detroit. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, well, I'm going to say, but I did, um, you know, Detroit though it was had a lot of you know value, novelty value because it was so different. Like it had snow. You know where I come from, there's no snow. You know, I I right. learned I learned. I learned phrases like wind chill factor. You know that just wasn't even <laughs> that wasn't even a yeah. even a thing. And um, I also, you know, I went to the movies crazy. I used to love this grindhouse theater called the Northgate. I saw lots and lots of films oh, at yeah. the Northgate. Um, um, love that. And um, so yeah, I really love. I actually really love moving to Detroit. Punch and Judy Theater was another theater I used to go to. They, I think I saw Razorhead there. Oh, Basket Case as well. That's when I first saw. No, with brother. In the basket. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, so that's fantastic. I, I really liked. Um, yeah, so I liked it, and I have been back there a couple of times. I've still got some friends. I've still got some friends back there uh, that I've kept in touch with. So every couple of years, I basically get on a plane and go back up there and spend like a week or two there. You know, catching up with old friends, and I go to the old um, some of the old theaters. Like um, I used to go to the Showcase mm. in Selling Heights was another one I used to go to all the time, and the Abbey that's gone now. I noticed because you know I'm. I have a good memory of that thing, so I'll, I'll go. Oh, yeah, yeah. That used to be over the road from the um, 
was over the road from the Madison Heights Mall. That's not there anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have a lot of my memories of, of, of good memories of Detroit. Oh, yeah. it's. I still have friends, you know, of course, and, and everybody. It's kind of funny because a couple times on the show, you know, I'll, 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 I'll be funny, quote, unquote, and make a little joke or something. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I said on one episode, uh, we were talking, I was talking to somebody from Detroit and I, I said, yeah, I said, whenever anybody asks me, uh, you know, whenever we, I talk about the movie RoboCop to somebody, yes, if they've been yes. to Detroit, they understand. <laughs> they, <laughs> they get it. Um, so my friends yeah. give me a hard time. They're like, it's not like that anymore, Jamie. There's, you don't see burning cars on the side of the road. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, it was funny yeah. because even when I, even when I went to live there when I was, you know, you know, really young, and even people in the U.S. who I'd meet, you know, from other places, like I used to still, you know, travel a bit, they'd go, oh, my God, Detroit. But right. I never thought, but to me, I never, I always thought that Detroit, in a way, got a bad rap because people, I think, always made mm. Detroit on literally a couple of blocks of downtown Detroit. And, you know, right. I would say, well, where I live, it's, it's nice. Madison Heights is nice. nice. And, uh, Birmingham was nice. And, Birmingham uh, definitely nice. Friend, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Josh lived in a lived in a place called Bloomfield Hills. That was nice. And uh, oh, Franklin, that's even that's pinky out nice. Yeah, that's yeah, real and, nice. And, and, and then of course you got Gross Point. So when people talk about Detroit, they're not talking about Gross Point. No, it kind of gets a bad rap. It absolutely does. I remember the uh, this was you know probably twenty years ago. It was my first time going to Paris. I had to go over there and give a lecture um, about art and pop art and stuff at right. this museum. And uh, so it was over there. Uh, took my ex-wife. Uh, we had never taken a honeymoon, so it was like, well, we only have to pay for you, you know. So that's let's uh, kind of kill two birds with one stone. So we were over there, and uh, we she wanted to go to the Moulin Rouge and then uh, the Ninth District there, and right. I'm like, yeah, okay. So I've got, you know, and I'm still a big, you know, I'm still, I'm, I'm in Paris doing the art thing. So I've got my big Robert Smith hair going and I'm wearing like a purple suit or something, looking like the Joker. And I'm walking down the street and there was a black guy and he was like, uh, he was dealing. He's like, hey, and everybody thought from the way I looked, they thought I was British for some reason. <laughs> I guess the hair, I don't know. He's like, hey, I've got, I've got heroin, I've got smack, you know, oh, and I'm like, and I don't want any of that. I'm from Detroit. And without missing a beat, he's like, I got crack. I got crack. I'm like, no, man, I'm good. Thanks. But that just tells you the worldview of Detroit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's, that's, very, that's very funny. Oh, man. So this is, this is a very cool movie. Now, you, um, so you obviously have always been into movies, and it's really no surprise then that you started making movies, you know, like, like, Feature films and whatnot. Yeah, cool I started when I was the best 15. job in the world. Wow. Yeah, well, I, my first movies were made when I was 15. I, I, I actually started with a Super 8 camera. I had a Super 8 camera at a very early age, and my first films were financed mm-hmm. by McDonald's because I, I worked at McDonald's to finance my early Super 8 movies. So <laughs> I flipped burgers and made fries and thick shakes and shit like that. Um, because people always say, well, who financed your first movie? And he's true, McDonald's. Yeah, because I worked, uh, I think mm-hmm. I worked about 15 hours a week in my last, in, in my last, say, three years of high school, you know, probably year 10, 11, and 12, I, I worked at McDonald's. And back in those days, the film was, even though it was Super 8, it was still expensive because I didn't graduate, graduate to 16 mil for a couple of years later. But um, even back then, right. it was like $7 for, $7 for three minutes and 20 seconds of silence film. So, 
mm. that was a lot of money to a school kid, you know. Um, so oh, absolutely. I, 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 that's why I worked those shifts. So I spent pretty much all my money on film stock and horror and horror books and movie books. I mean, that was pretty much my it was like an addiction, and it probably hasn't gone away. <laughs> um, oh. and, yeah, and then eventually I always figured that I sort of made about 120 Super 8 films between the age of 15 and wow. like 17 or 18. Three features, and I think I did three feature length ones and about 120 ones, or between like three and eight minutes. That was my film school, and um, and then yeah. So then when I then when I then went to the US, yeah, worked in the US, did what I did, came back here, worked for a production company, but I got in there by being a night dubber because I needed someone to dub VHSs really late at night between 11 and 8 because the VHSs were the X-rated stuff which they couldn't have playing during the mm. day because they also had Christian clients. So they basically got someone, hey, do you want to do that? And I go, sure, if, if it's going to get me into the business. So I, I basically got in there, worked there for 12 months, and eventually one day they started having, like, the cameraman and the sound recorders. People wouldn't turn up. And I'd finish my shift and go, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it. And they'd say, don't you have to sleep? I go, no, hell no. So I'd basically go in on shoots with them. and Because they already knew I made Super 8s, but that wasn't something that legitimized mm. me. So eventually... Um, I kept getting um, jobs, and then eventually they were able to take me off the night shift, and I started doing um, you know, camera work and sound recording, and then eventually the director didn't show up, so I'd say, oh, well, uh, how about I do, I'll shoot it and direct it, so they go, that's good, because we're only paying you, we can pay you for a cheap job, and you can do the, you know, the, um, <laughs> the bigger job, and, and then from that production company, that was how I did my first movie, because... I spoke to the guy who ran the company. He was a really nice, really nice guy. I said to him one day, I said, you know something, Peter? All the equipment that you have here and all your edit suites are sitting around doing nothing on the weekend. That's two out of seven mm. days your investment is going down the toilet. And he said to me, right. what are you getting at? And I said, wouldn't it be helpful if someone were to take this equipment and use it on the weekend and try to generate something from that like a movie? And he goes... And he just said, well, I guess that's you that you're proposing. And I said, yes. So that was how I did the first movie, that I got him to wow. um, give us all the resources uh, on the weekend, edit suite and lights and everything. Even he even gave us a gas card so we, you know, while we're driving around. So we made a film that took us 60, it took us 40 weekends to shoot. So essentially 80 days, 40 weekends in a row. And that was the first film. And I ended up finishing the film and then, um, made some money, took a, took a check to him, and he, he said, what's this for? And I said, well, this is for, you know, we made, you couldn't believe we'd actually made money on a film, but not the kind of film he would make. You know, it was like a, like sort of like an action, right. kind of crazy urban action film. And he said, and he ended up just giving me the check back. He said, oh, don't, don't worry about it, guys, I'm proud of you. And that was pretty much how we did, that's how I did the first. That's first amazing. From, from that. And yeah. it just goes, you know, it's so cool, and I hope, because I know listening to this, uh, well, you know, in a couple of days or whatever, somebody will be listening to the podcast, maybe later today. And, um, yep. you know, they, they want to be doing what you, you're living the dream. They want to be doing what you're doing. And there's some very valuable lessons in there for anybody that, that you know, has that passion is work. <laughs> work. Right. Work your tail off, you know. And that goes for yeah. whatever your passion is. No, you're right. Be nice, um, make friends. Get your no, foot you're right. door. Um, that's that's the best advice. Yeah, make friends and basically build up, you know, build up people who become your friends. And um, the other thing is too, I think something that I often tell people um, is 
and I'm, I'm also starting a like I'll start posting in about a month um, a YouTube channel that's going to be all about my um, experiences in you know getting films up and stuff like that. Really? Um, I'm, yeah, I'm going. I've already recorded twenty of them, but I I was told to record about twenty five, and then when you've done it, then to start releasing them like two a week. So I wanted to make sure I got a bit mm-hmm. ahead. But one one piece of advice that that's in that, and I think it still really applies, is that when you've got a project, decide the kind of project it is. But when you target people as investors, target people who like that type of thing. So you've got to research the people right. you're seeing. Because most people are going to invest in something which they themselves have some sort of emotional interest in. And because I'm not talking about going to people like hedge funds who are investing in, you know, like $100 million movies. But, I mean, when you're doing movies in the sort of, you know, budget range of, say, between, say, you know, in the race, say, between 100 and, say, 100,000 and, say, 2 million, go to people, find people who, you know, for example, um, there's a soccer film in my future, a girl's soccer film, and that's financed by guys who've got, daughters who play soccer so the thing is you know Brilliant. it's really important that you've almost got to cast your investors you know that there's no point right. going to say for example there's no point going to someone to say for example who doesn't like action movies and asking them to invest in an action movie that's why that's why i always ask people when i meet them what's some of your favorite movies or some of your favorite art you know i always find out like artistically and they don't, have, they don't have to be an artist to you know have artistic you know interest. I say to mm-hmm. them, you know, artistically, what kind of stuff do you like? And some people say, oh well, I like you know, say to them, like, oh, I like Goodfellas. Someone else says, one of my favourite films is The Exorcist. Another person's going to say, I love No Country for Old Men. Well, in those three different films, they're, they're three very distinct investors. So you, you say right. you're doing a film, and you sort of go, well, this is a film I think the person who would love No Country would might be interested in. And that's pretty much that's if anything, that's my I guess, little secrets, not really a secret, but I mean, that's something that I find really helps to focus, focus the targeting of the investor. Be, and, you, and also, hopefully, then you can become, you know, you become friends with your investors, especially if you're, as long as you're transparent with people, um, I, you know, the investors become your partners, you know, your friends. You know, I've right. never really had a relationship where it's just like, I don't know them, they throw money in, and I'm not really dealing with them. No, I, I generally have investors who I become friends with, Sometimes we, we actually become partners, you know, in an LLC or something like that. No, I'm not. I'm not hiding anything from you know. Like I I, mm-hmm. I, I want to want to make a film, work as hard as I can to get a return. Um, you know, you don't always get the return you want. So you get more than you want, but at least if you're transparent, they know that you're giving it 100. percent And um, it's the sort of thing that emotionally they already wanted to see. So their reason for investing is not just to make a return, it's also because it's something that truly feeds their own their own soul. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's cool to, you know, if, hey, anybody listening that's sitting around uh, really digs movies and, uh, you know, has a, a little, ne- you know, a little jar, uh, a coffee can of money uh, <laughs> buried in the backyard, <laughs> you know, um, Anybody can go to a cocktail party and say, yeah, you know, I put my money in CDs. Whatever. Boring. Boring. No women are going to talk to you if you have that story. If you say, yeah, I'm in the the movie business a little bit, women will talk to you. Or men, whatever you're saying. Um, Yeah, what happens? It's a decent decent icebreaker, I I suppose. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's cool. It's logic. You know, it's logic. And that's, you know, I'm in the art game. And um, you're absolutely right. I 
I'm not going to sell any of my pop art to somebody that just likes, you know, uh, Victorian landscapes. They ain't going to be into that. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not yeah. going to. Yeah. And all I'm doing is wasting a lot of time trying to convince them. You know what I mean? Trying to make that yeah, happen. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, because I find, too, that if anyone, if anyone is taking months to make up their mind, then they're not interested. Because... Usually right. people will say on the, on when you meet them and you present something to them, they'll they'll pretty much say right away whether they're interested or not. If um, otherwise, I mean, <laughs> I learned this thing you know when I was younger because I used to get strung along sometimes for twelve months, and it's because I used to sometimes meet a brand of investor who just liked the fact that I was chasing them because I thought they were rich, they were getting off on that. Mm-hmm. So so being a big you learn to identify those people and they're just wasting your time. Whereas most, you know, whereas now it becomes a little bit more easier to sort of go, okay, this person's interested. That's fine. I mean, there's not, I'm not high pressure on them. It's just like, usually they'll come to me and often I even talk people out of investing because sometimes they'll say to me, well, you know, I'd be really interested in investing in that. And then I'll say to them, well, what's your net worth? And sometimes they'll tell me, I'll go, there's no way you should invest. That, your net worth <laughs> is only double the budget of a movie. Absolutely. And they'll say to me, yeah, but, you know, I, I know you could probably make the money back because I know your films have pretty much, you know, got a pretty good track record. And I said, yes, but that's, a, you know, there can be, that there are exceptions. And I said, you should never, ever invest like half your net worth in a movie. So what's the right. thing you should do? You never invest what you aren't, what you can't afford to lose, you know, because exactly. things happen, man. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. if you go to Vegas, um, you, you, it's the same thing. <laughs> you know, don't sit at the table. Yeah, I, 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 I agree, yeah. and that's pretty much always what I do say to people. Yeah, it really should be something that you can afford to lose because also the vagaries of the industry, you know, you may be in a situation where the film comes out and, for example, there may be another film that's 10 times your budget and is heavily marketed by a Hollywood studio comes out on the same day. That will hurt your film. You may also hire an actor, and the actor is somehow disgraced between hiring mm-hmm. them and the film being released. So that can impact the box office. You also have changing fortunes in the way that films make money because they used to make a lot more money on home video. That's not near as high anymore because people have moved to streaming. Um, so, you know, right. there used to be... People used to be able to... Well, even now I know that even what you would call now that used to call in the 80s, you had film companies like PM Entertainment were making really, you know, sort of fun, generic action movies. Those films are like $2.5 million. Those films now, they're the $600,000 movie. That, that, those $300 right. films which are, are not making that money back anymore unless they've got a huge star in them. And generally, the huge star is being paid 80% of the budget and the rest of the film is being made for 20% of the budget. That's right. the reality. Including so you. you need... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. No, that's, completely, that's completely true. And so the economics can also change before the investment period and when it's out. Because also keep in mind, too, that when someone invests in a movie, you probably won't start production until, say, like three to six months after you get the investment money. Mm-hmm. You've been a fool and you start everything. You start the process just, just hoping the money comes in, which I never do. So the thing is, it's more that if you get the money in January, the film is shooting in May. It's not completely finished post-production until, like, the following February. Then if you find, that, then if you find a good distributor, then even if the distributor picks the film up in March, they've got a calendar of releases and they might say, well we're going to put this out in September. So if you look at the timeline, that's right. almost already two years. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So that's why, yeah, so that's why someone will say to me, 
I'm not going to start getting any money for like two and a half years or two years. I said, yeah, but that's, it doesn't mean that we're not moving quickly, but the realities of the process is each process from pre-production to production to post-production to um, distributors. Like even a distributor will say, we're going to look at the movie. If you've got three distributors looking at the movie, that can take three months to finally get an answer and to finally talk right. to those people about what's the best deal. Are you getting a minimum guarantee? You know, what is it? And by the time you decide we're going with this one, you've then got to do contracts. So, the, so you're... Your lawyer is also going back and forth with them. So it's actually a really long process. So, yeah, it's, a, it's about you will not start seeing any revenue until essentially the, the second, between second to third year, you'll start, that's when your main revenue will be coming in. And so essentially years, years three and four are your main years for, for revenue return. And so it is a four-year four um, deal. Commitment, yeah, absolutely. And, yes. you know, but it's cool that you let people know that up front. And I tell you, anybody who's probably been in down, you know, that's been down that road probably already knows that just from experience, you know. Um, but yeah. I'm sure new people coming in <laughs> are very surprised, you know. Oh, no, they're um, not sure it, because I just, don't, I just don't think they know the logistics of uh, making a film. And, I mean, with me, because I produce and direct, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, luckily I'm doing a film soon that I'm not producing, which is great. It's almost like a vacation to me to not also be producing. Um, and, <laughs> right. and, and, it's, and it's, but to me, because I've been through the processes, um, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm able to then explain to people exactly the weight of each process and how, how you know, because sometimes I'll say, oh, you know, they'll, they'll think you're giving the money, then nine months later, they're, they're starting to see revenue. I say, well, by that time, the film hasn't even got a distributor yet, you know, that it's, it's a very, right. it's a long, it's a long, it's a long drawn out process. But as long as you understand, as long as you understand it, and that's why I say, don't ever just, yeah, don't invest in a film thinking, well, this is going to be my my ultimate nest egg, or you or invest in right. already something all you all you've got because, um, yeah, that's something. It's better to go to people who really you are, know, you know, high 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 net worth individuals. And the thing is, the reality is, if you're going to be, if you're the type of cat that's going to be, you know, throwing some investment towards uh, movies, um, you know, feature films and whatnot, you probably should have a few other avenues of investments going as well. You know, you, you don't yeah. want to just say, okay, I'm putting everything into this and we're, we're rolling, yeah. that, you know. Um, and people with that level of, of money and that level of income usually know that. You know, they, they usually... Oh, yes. Yes. Although I've met some lottery winners in my time, you know, that <laughs> are broke six months later, and you're like, yeah, they they didn't know how how money works. Um, now you're you know, you're totally right fan. because you'll have people with different levels of risk. Well, I, um, one of the investors, well, actually one of the most ideal investors I ever had, I found an investor, and his and he had money in lots of different things, but one of the main things he was used to losing money in is that he also owned racehorses. Mm. So. So he totally understands. I mean, compared to racehorses, the film industry is incredibly lucrative because right. if you own racehorses, you basically know that that is, that is mostly you are in it because you either you just love the game, you love the you know you, you right. love the greening aspect, or, or you love just owning horses. But that is a bottomless pit of expenditure. So I remember when oh, I met yeah. this guy and I was saying, well, okay, well, the chances of making money are good. I remember him saying to me, he goes, well, that's like about 10 times better than racehorses. <laughs> you know, so, so, so for him, it, it, 
it was, it was all relative to risk. I mean, this was also a guy who also had, you know, of course, shares and stocks and index funds and things like that. So he, he, had, right. he had his very secure investment. So that's why he had the money to play. So his absolute hobby mm. was racehorses. So then when I proposed, <laughs> well, let's make a movie and it's going to cost this, to him that was kind of like, oh, yeah, well, that sounds like a little bit more, that sounds like a lot more of a sure thing uh, compared to racehorses. This is like a sure thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a friend of mine whose daughter just horses. I have found in my life and I'm probably gonna get emails for this saying this, but horses are always expensive. Whatever level you have horse, you're involved in that way. If there's a horse involved, you're spending some money. I have a friend of mine (laughs) whose daughter just, uh, they just got her daughter a horse. And then folks, that doesn't mean the horse lives at their house. They pay a stable and you know, there's all these fees (laughs) Uh, yeah. oh, he yeah. told me that, and I, I didn't say a word, I, but I was thinking it. I was like, oh, man. Oh, yeah, no, you're, he just you're stepped totally in the quicksand. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, oh. Horses, ho- horses, you've got to have yeah, – you've definitely got to have the cash, and, and you have to just be prepared that whether you race them or not, yeah, like horse you, – you'd better be into those horses because – you know, the value is going to come from the value is not going to come from the money you make. The value is going to come from the love of horses, or, or whatever way, you know, whatever pleasure Absolutely. you get from, you know, you get from horses. Because I, I did know some people, and they had um, three daughters who all rode horses, so they had three horses. And eventually, Ooh. I remember the, um, the father saying to me, "Oh my God, it's like." You know, so they've got three, they've got to be kept in a pasture, and there's food for them, and there's vet bills. He said, oh, yeah, it's like half the money yeah. I'm is going on horses. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and you're like, should have invested in that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> should no. have invested in that movie. As you're lighting your yeah, cigar exactly. with $100. No, I'm, I'm teasing. Well, <laughs> hey, man, Mark, everybody, I want everybody to know. Check out Mark Savage's movies. Um, definitely this Tuesday the 4th, Painkiller Drops. you got to watch. This is a really cool. If you like an action action um, with a message, uh, this is definitely the movie for you. I really enjoyed this. Um, and also, also, while we're on the uh, subject, I have not watched this yet. Me and Mark were talking about this earlier this week. His last movie, Purgatory Road, uh, is out. It, it's out. And it, that's the one you had mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, yeah. they tackle – the evil religious, uh, the priest, evil priest. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like a bit of an evil, uh, it's basically that um, um, a priest and his brother kind of on the highways of Mississippi, they, ha- they run a mobile confessional um, on the road in the mm. towns that don't have churches. And it's kind of like how, it's kind of like his brother, you know, the priest, he's got a bit of an issue with people who commit certain sins. You know, he has trouble uh, forgiving them. So the film sort of ex- right. explores that. But we also throw in a good priest as well, so it doesn't seem like we're, we're just saying that all, 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 all priests are demons. Um, but, yeah, that was the one that was made just before this one, and then um, Stress to Kill was before that. And then our next one is, is one about uh, approaching the subject of Little League brutality towards children by coaches and parents. Like, that's mm. the next one that we're exploring. Nice, nice. Well, I can't wait to see him. I definitely am going to be watching Purgatory Road, and everybody listening, it's on Tubi. You don't even have to pay for it, man. You don't need a subscription with Tubi. You know, you just go to the link. I'll post a link on my social media, and you just click on that, and the movie starts right there. How about that? Have your popcorn ready, because you can watch it. Tubi's great. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's such a good little uh, platform. We, and, you know, it's funny, somebody was saying, well, I don't have a Roku. How do I watch it? 
my wife's the tech genius of our uh, right. our little house right. here. She's she's on all this stuff. She's young, you know, and uh, she knows how to do it. I don't even know how to work a phone. Anyway, she right. um, <laughs> we have we watch it through a PlayStation, a PlayStation Four, five, I don't know whatever. It is. Anyway, that's how we watch the streaming stuff. But there's a Ooh, you can watch it on the PlayStation because. I've, I've done it. I didn't, um, I didn't even know that myself. I didn't know that either that you could watch that you could watch like almost use your um, PlayStation as a Roku player. Yeah, absolutely, man, absolutely. Right. I, I I watch a lot of YouTube videos on the big TV. Um, <laughs> so, you know, oh, that's great through the PlayStation. Yeah, um, fantastic. Anyhow. Mark, you are cool. Turned up to ten. Um, you are just, you know, you know this. I'm going to tell you anyway. Keep doing what you're doing, man. You're real good at it. Thank you. Making these movies out. So cool. Well, you're really good at you what know? you're doing. This has been a this has been a massively um, um a massively fun um interview. You know, your uh your your um your professionalism is so you know so a lot of respect for the way that you conduct that you conduct yourself and oh, you know the uh, thanks, man. That's, very, very cool. I just don't know how very to do cool. it any other way. <laughs> you know, that's, how, that's how I feel. I don't feel like I really have any option. I've got to do what I keep doing until the day I die, and I, and I will. So, you know, that's, that's, it. that's, our, that's our fate. Yeah. Well, you know, the cool thing, Mark, the cool thing is you know that come 15 years from now or something, there's going to be somebody on a podcast somewhere. They may be on the moon, who knows, or on Mars. But they're going <laughs> yeah. to have a story, and they're going to say, yeah, I went to this little room, and Mark Savage was just hanging out in there, you know, and they were talking about movies. <laughs> yes. Just like you at the ring, you know. Uh, yeah, that was pretty, yeah, like it is something I never, definitely something I never, definitely something I never forgot was really inspiring. This was a group of guys who just went ahead and did amazing stuff. And um, and this was pretty, this was there before Book of the Dead became Evil Dead and Stephen King revisited in Khan and it became the sensation. So, yeah, it was kind of cool to meet them just before that. That's amazing. And I know you're cool because you met a girl through Starlog. Wow. <laughs> That's got to be a record. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, oh, I, think well, hey. no- I think it's Starlog number 20. I think it's in the letters column. Of Star- <laughs> I think it was number 20 of Starlog. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Hey, Mark, I know it's Friday in L.A. Have fun, whatever you're yep. getting into tonight. And um, I, uh, everybody else, this uh, – this episode will be converted to a uh, podcast. It'll be pushed out up, uh, tonight on all the uh, social media platforms and on all the podcasting platforms. We're on like 300 of them. It's, um, if you wow. want to listen to this show on uh, Pandora or Spotify, whatever, we got you covered, baby. We got you covered. Matter of fact, if, after you get done listening to this show, if you uh, just say, you know, I, I just really am jonesing to hear Jamie talk to some cool people, it would take you about 45 to 50 days, 24 hours a day. This is episode wow. 1099 tonight. So uh, that's a lot of talking. Anyhow, we will see everybody uh, next tomorrow, actually. Hey, yeah, for those people that tuned in yesterday, uh, some stuff happened. Our filmmaker had some stuff come up on the set. And uh, so we, we switched it to tomorrow. So we have a special Saturday show tomorrow for that. So we will see you then. Mark. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. I really appreciate it, man. You're awesome. Thank you so much, Jamie. It's been a ginormous pleasure. <laughs> cool, man. Cool. Well, I'll talk to you soon, man. Keep making the movies. Okay. okay ciao for now. Awesome. Well, there you go, folks. We will see you next time. Have a good one. And uh, 
See you soon. Bye. This has been pop art painter Jamie Rocks' Pop Rocks Radio Talk Show. It has been executive produced by Jamie Rocks, recorded at his studio in Deerfield Beach in South Florida. All rights reserved by Pop Rocks Limited for broadcast on Blog Talk Radio. Tana Oli Pop Rocks Radio. Estás escuchando Jamie Rocks de Pop Rocks Radio. Manténganse al tanto. Hey, det här är Hicks från Sverige och ni lyssnar till Pop Rocks Radio med Jamie Rocks. Blog Talk Radio.